Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. Good morning, church. Amen. Again, as Brandon has stated, our scripture reading this morning is coming from the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 11, and the word of the Lord reads, Therefore... Since the promise to enter into enter his rest remains, let us beware that none of you be found to have fallen short. For we also have received the good news just as they did. But the message they heard did not benefit them since they were not united with those who heard it in faith. For we who have believed enter the rest in keeping with what he has said. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest, even though his works have been finished since the foundation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in this way. And on the seventh day, God rested from all of his, all his works. And again, in that passage, he says, they will never enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly received the good news did not enter because of disobedience, he again specifies a certain day, today. He specified this speaking through David after such a long time. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about, uh, spoken later about another day. Therefore, a Sabbath rest remains for God's people. For the person who has entered his rest has rested from his own works, just as God did from his. Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. We thank God for the reading of his word. Thank you, Nathan. I hope that that was super clear to every one of you. I know. Um, here's, here's a trick, not a trick. Here's a way of keeping yourself humble. If you ever think you know the Bible, just go open Hebrews and just start reading. Like, it's, it's the most confusing thing. Um, except for, like, Daniel and Revelation, Hebrews is probably the most confusing book, especially for us. Um, and so we're going to start with what the heck is going on here, because if we're not set on that, then you're not going to follow anything that I have to say for the rest of the sermon. So we're here in the book of Hebrews. We're in chapter 4, which is a terrible place to start. Um, it's usually best to start at the beginning when you're reading something. You know, you get jumped into the middle of it, and it's like jumping into the middle of a TV series you've never watched before, right? Season 4, episode 3, you don't have a clue what's going on, and that's kind of where we are right now. Um, so Hebrews is a mysterious book. It's a letter written to Jewish Christians, but we don't know who wrote it or to whom they wrote it, meaning like we don't know where it was addressed to. There was no like, send this to Ephesus on the letter. It just kind of appears, um, and it's a letter to Jewish Christians. And it's a letter to Jewish Christians specifically in churches where some of the Jewish followers of Jesus have now started going back to their practices of the law. They've gone back to try to make sacrifice for their own sin. They've, they've been living into kind of the religious culture in which they grew up. 
And the writer to Hebrews makes the case that when you do that, you abandon Jesus because you're trying to add to what Jesus has done and it doesn't work. So if you're ever reading Hebrews and you're really confused, just remember that's the main point of the whole letter of Hebrews. They're building this case from the very beginning all the way through to the end, and it really does build. It kind of crescendos in chapters 11 and 12 of Hebrews as the writer makes the case, look, if you're trying to go back to the temple, if you're kind of trying to go back to the old ways, back to the law, you're actually trying to add to Jesus, and you're nullifying any good Jesus does for you. You're trying to go back and earn your salvation again. And when you do that, Jesus is no longer your sacrifice. You're trying to make sacrifice for yourself. Jesus is no longer your righteousness. You're trying to be righteous for yourself. Does that make sense? All right. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. It's a lot of words and it's really complicated language all to say basically that. Jesus is the once for all sacrifice for sin and he is now the high priest of God's people who pleads our case on our behalf. And without him, if we try to add stuff, we basically undermine what Jesus is doing and has done for us. So that's the point. Now we get here to chapter 3 and 4. You got to know chapter 3 to know chapter 4. So the letter is being written to these Jewish Christians who are kind of abandoning Jesus to go back to the law, back to sacrifice, and earn their way into God's grace. And then in chapter 3, the writer does something called midrash. Anybody heard the word midrash before? It's a fun word to say. Say it with me, midrash. Come on, midrash. There you go. Um, midrash is what rabbis or Jewish teachers would do with the Old Testament. They would take a text and they would interpret it and make commentary on it for the people. So we know whoever's writing Hebrews, and it's not the Apostle Paul, right? Whoever's writing Hebrews is a Jewish teacher. They're a rabbi of some sort. They know the scripture really well. And they're doing what ancient Jewish teachers would do is they're offering midrash on Psalm 95. So now we got to go back to Psalm 95. I told you Hebrews is complicated, right? It's all over. Um, he quotes Psalm 95 and then offers some interpretation of it. Now, Psalm 95 is really interesting because the bulk of the psalm is about repentance. It's about, God, we love you. It's basically the song we just sang, which is like, God, I love you. I want you. I repent of my sin. I turn to you. I want to be faithful to you. And then in the last few verses of Psalm 95, there's kind of this, this turn where the psalmist, presumed to be King David, says, by the way, if God is speaking to you, don't harden your hearts. That's what your ancestors did way back in Manasseh, or not Manasseh, Massa, way back in the book of Exodus. So now we've got to go back to the book of Exodus. We just keep like leapfrogging back, right? We're in Hebrews, now we're in Psalms, now we're going back to the book of Exodus. You see, what happened is the people of God, the Israelites, were enslaved in Egypt, right? We, you know this. They were enslaved in Egypt for like 400 years. And then God raises up Moses as a leader from among his people, frees the people from slavery in Egypt, and they start traveling through the wilderness. Now they're going to the place that God has promised them they'll get to live, the land that they will get to inherit forever, that will be their own. And when they get there, the land is supposed to be like flowing with milk and honey. And it's supposed to be this beautiful, incredible place. It's called the promised land. The land of Canaan. And so 
the people are traveling through the wilderness trying to get to the promised land. Only when they're in the wilderness, you know, it's, it's hot, it's desert. They got to rely on God to give them food. In fact, God makes this miraculous stuff fall on the ground every morning. We call it manna. Do you know what the word manna means? What is it? Oh, we've talked about this before, right? It's called the name for the stuff that God put on the ground for them to eat is what is it? Why? Because people stepped out of their tents one morning and was like, what's that? That's a good name for it. And they called it manna, manna. Right? And so the people are being miraculously fed by God. Only you might know if you've ever tried to rely on a miracle, it's really hard to do. It's really hard to believe that every morning, God will provide you what you need. We are a people who are self-sufficient. Human beings from the beginning of time are self-sufficient. That's part of what happened in the Garden of Eden when the fall happened was Adam and Eve wanted to be self-sufficient and they were tempted to self-sufficiency. They didn't need God. They could be gods themselves. And so the serpent tempted them to take the fruit to be self-sufficient apart from God. This is exactly what happens as the people are wandering in the wilderness. They're heading to the promised land. God's given them this promise, but they start grumbling. We're going to die out here in the wilderness. We're never going to get to the place that God promised. And by the way, God isn't giving us enough food. And by the way, I don't see any water around here. How is God going to give us water? Um, Moses, you need to have a conversation with God because we need to get there faster and we need more stuff right now. And they start complaining and grumbling. And if you've ever had a three-year-old in your house... Or a four or a five or you yourself, if you've ever listened to yourself. You know what grumbling and complaining can do. And so this honestly wears on God's patience. To the point that finally God says these ungrateful people can't even enter the promised land. They're grumbling. They have no faith. They don't believe in me. How are they ever going to live in this land that I've given them? They're going to get to that land, and you know what's going to happen? They're going to get to the promised land, and they're going to try and be self-sufficient again. And they're going to fall into the same patterns of life again. And they're going to be enslaved to themselves again. And they're not going to trust me. And so this generation of grumblers and complainers can't enter the promised land. And so Moses, uh, buddy, you guys are never going to, you're never going to lead these people into the promised land. This whole generation has to die. And so they wander for 40 years until the generation dies. They wander with no hope in the wilderness, raising children, hoping that the children will be more faithful than they have been so the children can enter into the promised land. And so Psalm 95 is saying, we repent, and when we hear God's voice, we're not going to be like our ancestors in the wilderness and grumble and not trust God. We're going to believe God, we're going to trust God, and we're going to follow Him faithfully. And so don't be like that generation in the wilderness that God said, you can never enter into my rest. You can never enter the promised land. And so the writer of the Hebrews here is taking up Psalm 95. And he's commenting on Psalm 95 and telling the Jewish Christians, these Jewish followers of Jesus, hey, don't be like that generation wandering in the wilderness that God said, you can't enter my rest. You can't enter the promised land. Because we have a promise of rest. You see, at this time, the idea that like God would lead people into a promised land where they were free and where they were no longer oppressed by any empire above them, by any other nation on earth, that had kind of gone away. 
For a long time, the people of God, the Israelite people, had lived under the thumb of some kind of empire. Assyria, then Babylon, then Persia, then like this crazy group of like old-time Persian guys like were ruling them. And then comes Rome, and Rome comes, and Rome wipes out the other empire, and now Israel is living under the thumb of Rome. They're living under the oppression of Rome. And the Jewish people for a long time had finally said, you know what, I just don't see any way out of this. I don't know that Messiah is ever going to come and drive out the oppressor. They were waiting for the last day. They were waiting for God to finally come and wipe out all the other empires and nations of the world. And the promised land became an idea not so much of us living in the land of Israel without any empire over us. It became a way of saying the day that God comes and makes all things right. So promised land became a stand-in for heaven became a stand-in for the end of all things when God would rule and reign and nothing would ever be wrong again. God would wipe sin away from the world and only God's holy people, God's faithful people would remain in the world and all would be made right. We see this in in Christian history. I mean, the idea of promised land as, as heaven, the idea of promised land as the place we ultimately end up is all through Christian history. One of my favorite hymns is all about the promise. Anybody know the hymn on Jordan's stormy banks? On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful light. No, nobody knows this song? Y'all got to go look it up, okay? All right, y'all got to hear this song. Look up the Jars of Clay version from about 20 years ago. It's amazing. Um, it was written in the mid-late 1700s in England by this pastor who was looking at the world around him and specifically looking at England as a slave nation, looking at the oppression of the world around him and mourning it, longing for heaven, longing for Jesus to come and make all things right. And so the song says, I stand here on the stormy banks of the Jordan River and I can see the promised land. I'm bound for it. I can see its beauty. And I know the day is coming when I will enter into the promised land. I know the day is coming when I will cross this river. And I'll no longer live in the toil and the struggle of this world. I will cross into the promised land. This pastor sees heaven on the other side of the stormy world that he lives in now. And that's the idea here in Hebrews chapter 4. The idea that the promised land is just on the other side of this stormy existence. That heaven awaits. That the day Jesus makes all things right and we live in true and lasting peace is just on the other side of the river. It is coming. I can see it. I can taste it. I I can get the foretaste of what it is right now. I can live in some sense of that right now as I look to the promised land. And I live in hope. The point that the writer is making here is don't be like the grumblers back in Exodus. The people who couldn't trust God for their daily provision. The people who were grumbling and complaining and couldn't see God's promise ahead. Instead, the writer says, you have the promise right in front of you. His name is Jesus. 
You have the promised land. You have God's rest right here. Jesus has accomplished all for you. Your job is to be faithful to him. And the promised rest is yours. It is a secure and promised rest. Not through your sacrifices, not through your works of the law, not through your good deeds, but through the work of Jesus Christ and him alone. He has secured it. Don't try to undermine it by earning your own way into heaven. Don't try to undermine it by making your own sacrifices. Don't try to undermine what Jesus has done because he is calling you into rest. Rest from your weary work. Rest from your toil. Rest from your trying to earn God's affection in any other way. Jesus is your rest. That promised land that the people couldn't see is right in front of you. In the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is yours if only you will hold firm to it. It cannot be lost and you couldn't gain it. It is a gift of God to you. And so turn and trust to Jesus, not to your own self. See, Jesus' followers are invited into the now and not yet rest of Jesus. There's a sense in which the full rest of Jesus won't be available to us until we cross that river, until we cross the Jordan into the promised land until we find ourselves in heaven we find ourselves truly living in the world as Jesus will remake it truly living with God together no sin no pain no shame anymore fully healed fully enjoying the undiluted presence of our holy and loving God but in the here and now Jesus wants to lead us into rest. To put before us the promise of the rest of heaven. To put before us the promise of the eternal Sabbath when there will be no more struggle. There will be no more pain. But to allow that Sabbath rest, that heaven rest, to enter into our here and now. To bring healing in the here and now. To bring provision in the here and now. To bring peace in the here and now. So that in the middle of a troubled sea, in the middle of a stormy river, we can say, I have the peace of Christ. And we can walk as though we are secure in Jesus. We can walk as though we are the ones who are untouched by the storms of the world because we are. We are secure in Jesus. We know who we are because we know who he is. And we can walk untroubled through a troubled world. And we can be a taste of heaven. We can be a foretaste of that promised land. Don't you want when people to hang out with you? Don't you want when people spend time with you for them to walk away and go, that must be a little bit of what heaven's like. I mean, it would be amazing if everybody who spent time with me walked away and was like, I can feel heaven all over him. <laughs> if they walked away and they were like, man, I feel so at peace. I feel so loved. I feel so cared for. I feel like, I feel like the trouble of the world just, just doesn't have a hold on him. My father-in-law has a great way of saying this. When he meets somebody like that, he'll say, they've never had a bad day in their life. And it's true for followers of Jesus. 
We can live in the midst of a troubled world. And it doesn't mean that we're not going to feel the pain of it. It doesn't mean that it's not going to affect us in some way. But it does mean it will not crush us. It will not take us down. We have an enduring and lasting hope. And to be an ambassador of King Jesus, to be a follower of King Jesus in the here and now, means to bring that hope and that peace to bear on every situation of our lives and on the lives of everybody around us. If we're grumbling, mopey people, we have not walked in the rest of Jesus. If we're people who only see trouble and difficulty around every corner, if we're people who only see the darkness and want to complain about the difficulty of the world, we are not being a witness to Jesus. We're not attesting to the rest of Jesus, to the peace that Jesus brings. You and I should be an oasis in a desert. Spending time with us should be like drinking from a fresh spring for people who are dying of dehydration. Because we have the hope of Jesus springing up within us. This is what Jesus means when he says, if you had only known, you would ask me and I would give you wells of fresh water. Bubbling up within you. We ought to be the most refreshing people on the earth to be around. Because we live in the rest and security of Jesus, because we are invited into his eternal rest. We are a people who live with hope, not wandering in the world as a people with no hope. Think for a moment about that generation who died in the wilderness waiting to get to the promised land. The people to whom God said, you're not going to enter the promised land. Imagine for a moment living without that kind of hope. Some of y'all don't even have to imagine it. Some of y'all have been there. You've lived in this place where you just don't have any hope. There's been no such thing as hope in your life. Circumstances have come along and they've just robbed you of it. They've torn it away from you. Some of us deal with clinical depression where we live in a state of hopelessness. Some of us have been so abused and traumatized and beaten down that our hope has been robbed from us. Some of us say we believe in Jesus, but the way we live, we're practical atheists and our hope is drowned out. Imagine you're living in a place, wandering in the wilderness. You've had this promise of a promised land before you. You've had this promise of provision and of peace and rest before you, and now it's been taken from you. What does that do to a heart? Some of you don't know this story. In the time that we were making the transition from the last church I pastored to here, five, and a, five years ago, my wife was pregnant. And we came here, and I preached my last candidating sermon. After this sermon, they were going to vote to call me as pastor or not. And so that Sunday I preached, and that Sunday evening I got a call saying, hey, we want to call you as our pastor. And we were over the moon. We were so excited to come. And so that afternoon we had gone down to Colorado Springs to my father-in-law's house because we had an appointment with the OBGYN the next day with my wife's doctor. And we went in to have routine scans and we found that my daughter had no heartbeat. 
And so we went, and we had coffee, and we sat. We couldn't go, we couldn't go home yet to the kids, and so we just sat and processed that. Our daughter had died in the womb. Now, the problem, the problem is when your child dies in the womb, you still got to go through labor. You still got to go through all the normal things. And so we talked it over and the doctor had said, you can wait for this to happen naturally or we can induce labor. And uh, we decided we could drive two hours home to the plains and wait and then have to come back two hours into the hospital. Or we could have labor induced the next day. And so we called the doctor and we set up the labor to happen the next morning. We went into the hospital and they had cleared one wing of the maternity ward for us, given us three nurses just to be ours. Because they understood you're laboring with no hope. There's no chance this labor ends and Annie's alive. It's not possible. And so what should have been the most joyous time, you know what gets you through labor, is the joy of knowing you'll meet your child in the end. You know what carries you through that pain, ladies, is the joy of knowing that you'll get to hold your baby in the end. And so that morning, they induced labor. And my wife labored for hours. And then Annie was born. And we held her. And she didn't cry. That's what it is to live with no hope. It's a labor and a toil with nothing redemptive at the end of it. That's what it is to live in the world without the hope of Jesus' rest. That's what it is to walk through this stormy desert world and know that at the end, nothing is waiting for me. There's no joy to redeem all of the struggle. There's no joy to redeem all of the pain. There's nothing there to make it worthwhile. To live in the world without the hope of heaven, without the hope of a Sabbath rest from all of these years of toil is devastating. It's laboring with no joy of meeting your child in the end. It's living in pain with no chance of redemption. But in Jesus, in Christ, we know that a hope awaits us. We know that Annie's waiting for us. We know that there is hope in this story. We know that there is an end, that there's a redemptive end that will bring joy in that pain. C.S. Lewis said that 
for the person who lives in the hope of Jesus. They'll get to heaven and find that they were in heaven all along. That all of our pains will be redeemed. All of the struggle and toil will be redeemed. And we will see the hand of God at work even in our most difficult moments. But for the one who doesn't live in that hope, they'll get to the end and find that life has been a hell all along. There's nothing to redeem those struggles. There's nothing to redeem those trials. There's nothing to redeem that toil. And so we come to the very earnest appeal of the writer here. He specifies a certain day. Today, the rest is available to you. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day to step into the hope of the rest that Jesus provides. Today is the day to let God bring redemption to all of that struggle and toil, to step into the rest of Jesus, not to close off our ears or our hearts to the voice of God in us, calling us to follow Jesus, calling us to put our hope in Him and Him alone. Today is the day that all of my pain can be redeemed through my Savior, Jesus Christ. Today is the day that I can step into the hope of a promised land that waits for me, and that redeems even the most difficult time of my life. And so if God is speaking to you, do not harden your hearts. If you hear the voice of God calling you into this hope, don't harden your hearts. If you hear the voice of God calling you to faith in Jesus, to place your hope and your trust in Him and Him alone, to forsake your own efforts to save yourself or to earn God's love or to perform your way into heaven, if you hear God's voice saying, today is the day to come to Jesus, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of rest in Christ. Today is the day that God is calling you to give yourself to Christ and to stop your toil, to stop trying to earn affection and to know who God calls you in Jesus, his beloved child for whom he has purchased eternal rest and redemption. God, we thank you for the rest that you give us through Jesus Christ. We thank you for the promised land that redeems the darkest moments of our here and now. We thank you, Lord, that we do not labor in this world without hope. We are not those who live without hope, but we see the hope set before us in Jesus Christ. We live in your rest. We lay down our toil and we take up the name that you have given us child of God, citizen of my kingdom, disciple of Jesus. And we thank you that you've called us your own. God, Holy Spirit, give us the strength to walk in the rest of Christ. Not to harden our hearts to your voice, but to hear you and to follow into paths of righteousness that will redeem all of my life and set me on a course to the promised land. 
even in the here and now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for tuning into the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.